We all know the question of which came first, the chicken or the egg. But during the Red Scare of the Cold War, this question took on a different dimension. You couldn't import chickens from communist China into America, because those chickens were communist chickens. If, let's say, a live Chinese chicken stopped off in Hong Kong, which was a British territory, well, that hardly changed things. It was still a communist chicken, and killing it there wouldn't change that. But what about an egg? which came from that communist chicken and was laid in Hong Kong. Was that egg a commie egg, or a good old Hong Kong egg free to be exported to the States? Important government people genuinely worked on this stuff back then, and they weren't the only ones who were finding the relationship, or lack of it, between America and China a real headache. Welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. Today, the Sino-Soviet split finale. How China outmaneuvered the Soviet Union to foster their own peaceful coexistence with America. The result of which was the Shanghai Communique, the agreement which still governs Sino-American relations to this day. Probably most often cropping up when people are referring to the One China policy in relation to the Taiwan question. In episode one of this three-parter, China was alarmed at Soviet attempts to live alongside the Americans, and in part two, those attempts went into reverse as the Cold War reached its peak temperatures. By now, the first half of the 60s, China and the USSR were competing rather than cooperating. They were shoring up rival communist allies around the world and making rival investments, not supporting each other in the numerous disputes that they had with other nations. The Soviets even gave assistance to India in their 1962 border conflict with China, which prompted Beijing to break off relations. But despite the USSR still having the international legitimacy, it was Mao's China that was increasingly seen as a radical, authentic, anti-American bulwark, presenting the true alternative to the capitalist order. And if anyone wasn't convinced, Mao finally made them sit up and notice in 1964 with his first atomic bomb test, codenamed Miss Chiu which was accomplished despite Soviet nuclear assistance being withdrawn in 1959. Fittingly, Mao penned a poem. Atomic bomb goes off when it's told, Ah, what boundless joy. Yeah, Mao was weird. Mao's investment in atomic research exacerbated the famine in China, and life was hard and hungry. Near the northern border with the Soviet Union, Uyghurs in Xinjiang were fleeing north to escape. This and other historical territorial disagreements led to increasing tensions along the vast border between the two countries. Troop numbers on each side began increasing, and as skirmishes along the border became commonplace throughout the 60s, the rival administrations began wargaming the coming conflict. The Soviets had the nuclear stockpile, but China had almost endless fighters. Neither side relished a fight, but war was looking increasingly inevitable. Well, of course, this was music to the ears of the administration in Washington. It was hard enough having this cold war with Soviet Russia. Imagine if their communist chums in China were actually helping them. Instead of fighting America, the Soviets were worried about the Chinese storming over the border and engaging in guerrilla war. But at this stage, Washington didn't see a clear way to exploit the divisions. That would have to wait for the next administration. So the 60s ground on. Lyndon B. Johnson ratcheted up American involvement in Vietnam, which went badly. Mao launched China into the Cultural Revolution, 
which went badly, and Leonid Brezhnev led the USSR to more economic reforms, which went pretty badly. But England won the World Cup, and we had the Beatles and Hendrix and civil rights. Things were changing at a pace. A new world was being born. But the relationship between China and the Soviet Union stayed at rock bottom. Mao purged Soviet-friendly voices within his ranks. Then, in 1968, the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic, one of the European countries in the Kremlin's Eastern Bloc, embarked on a series of liberalising reforms which have become known as the Prague Spring. Unwilling to countenance such behaviour, Brezhnev sent hundreds of thousands of troops into Czechoslovakia and eventually installed a more malleable Czech leader. This interventionism became known as the Brezhnev Doctrine, to happily invade other countries in the interests of the Soviet bloc, or Moscow's interests. The Chinese response to the Soviet invasion left nothing to the imagination. Premier Zhou Enlai broke out of character when he compared Brezhnev to Hitler, invading Czechoslovakia like that. So what can we make of this broadside by Zhou Enlai, who, after all, was in the top tier of diplomats of the 20th century? Not comparing leaders to Hitler is one of the first things you learn in diplomacy school, and Zhou was no amateur. But here was China, sympathising with the liberalising agenda in Czechoslovakia, against the more hardline Moscow, and insulting the Russians who had, after all, sacrificed so many lives in their fight against Hitler. It wasn't exactly as if Maoist China was liberalising or moderating in the way the Prague Spring was set to do. In fact, at this exact time in Beijing, Chinese President Liu Xiaoqi was under house arrest and being violently and publicly persecuted for being a so-called capitalist roader. He would soon be stripped of all positions, ejected from the party in disgrace, and die in prison soon after. So it's quite clear that Zhou's comments on the Prague Spring had nothing to do with the Czechs, nothing to do with principles, and everything to do with China's animosity with the USSR. And in a sense, he was giving as good as he got. The Soviets had compared China to the Nazis too, saying that their ambitions to push their border north into what was then Soviet territory was like Lebensraum, Hitler's so-called living space. So everyone was doing the old Euro-Nazi thing. But it wasn't just communist infighting going on here. Zhou was the unrivaled Chinese diplomat, second to none in the field. And there was another scheme at hand. In 1969, a new Republican administration was elected in America, with Richard Nixon the president. Nixon was fortunate enough to be in the White House by the time Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, which made him look good. Uh, Neil and Buzz, uh, the president of the United States is in his office now and would like to say a few words to you, over. That would be an honor. Uh, Hello, Neil and Buzz. I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be... He also wanted to look good by winding down American involvement in the intractable Vietnam War. But negotiating his way out of that was tricky with America and China supporting different sides and giving each other the silent treatment. So, with his realpolitik sidekick Henry Kissinger... Nixon began passing notes to the Chinese through a friendly intermediary, the government of Pakistan. Kissinger was a big-thinking strategist, and he developed a theory of triangular diplomacy to take advantage of the split between China and the Soviet Union. If the communist world had been able to work together, they could have really put the Americans on the back foot. 
especially now that China had joined that rarefied club of nuclear states. But with the Soviets and the Chinese at loggerheads, America could perhaps get out of Vietnam and still come out on top. Capitalist America and Communist China had been ideological enemies since day one, and they'd been literal battlefield enemies too during the Korean War. The Republic of China on Taiwan was the official China in the eyes of the Americans, and the People's Republic of China on the mainland was persona non grata. It meant that the oldest continuously existing civilization in the world, that's China, and the current global hegemon, that's America, didn't even talk to each other. And that was a problem. And not just for eggs born in Hong Kong to Chinese chickens. American presidents came and went, all following the Truman Doctrine line of opposing the PRC. They didn't even call the PRC the PRC, such was their beef. And where Mao was concerned, the feeling was mutual. But his deputy, Premier Zhou Enlai, always had the option at the back of his mind, playing the long game as ever, despite being routinely shunned by his American counterparts at international events. The most well-known example being when US Secretary of State John Foster Dulles refused to shake Zhou's hand at the 1954 Geneva Conference on Vietnam. When Nixon mused on the necessity of Sino-American relations in a 1967 article in Foreign Affairs magazine, and again in his first presidential foreign policy speech after he was elected, Joe would have taken note with interest. By the late 60s, the Cultural Revolution was at its chaotic heights, and Chinese troops were agitating along the border between China and the USSR. And now Chinese civilians were getting involved, sticking it to the Soviet troops in the name of the chairman. In March 1969, these tensions turned into a full-on battle on an island in a river which demarcated the border, way off in the east near Vladivostok. Many troops were killed on each side, and each side proclaimed victory. The guns stopped, but more fighting occurred elsewhere along the border, and the Soviets and the Chinese both thought that these were the first tussles in what could become a full-scale war. The situation was serious. The threat from the north meant that China was withdrawing troops from Vietnam, where they'd been helping the North Vietnamese, with Soviet support, against the South Vietnamese and the Americans. But China was concerned that the communists in Vietnam were too Soviet-leaning, and so they were supporting the Khmer Rouge next door, in Cambodia, as a counterweight. Then, in 1969, Vietnam's Ho Chi Minh died, who was one of the revolutionary old guard along with Mao and Zhou. Back in the 1920s, Zhou had met Ho Chi Minh half a world away in Paris when they were students. It was Paris where these young men had heard the siren call of communism, and Ho spent many years in China with the communists until 1941, when he returned to Vietnam to embark on his revolution. Now he was gone, and the Vietnamese were too cosy with the Soviets. Global communism was proving to be weak in the face of competing nationalist interests. It all added up to a situation where abandoning the Vietnamese and talking to the Americans was looking more and more appealing. So after all these years where Mao had bemoaned the warming of relations between the Soviets and the evil imperialist Americans, he now saw the crack of an opening door with the old enemy across the ocean. And on the other side of that opening door, a bright light, a halo, if you will, emanating from right-wing arch-capitalist president 
Richard Nixon. Mao decided he would use the barbarians to keep down the barbarians, as he put it. Ally with a distant enemy to defeat the near enemy, so says ancient Chinese military wisdom. The rival administrations began to soften their language towards each other. The Americans started calling China the People's Republic of China instead of Red China, and China switched from U.S. imperialists to U.S.A. In August 1970, the journalist Eka Snow visited China for the last time. He'd spent many years in China throughout his life, had become pretty much world famous in the 1930s for writing about the plucky communists as they continued their guerrilla campaign against the nationalists. More than any Westerner, Snow had brought the cult of Mao to the world beyond the Middle Kingdom with his book, Red Star Over China, written just after the Long March. But now, like Mao and Joe, Snow was an old man. On National Day, October 1st, 1970, Snow became the first American to appear with Mao on the Tiananmen Gate Tower in Beijing to greet the masses. Later that day, Mao told him that, well, if Nixon wanted to visit, maybe as a tourist, maybe as a president, he would be welcome. The informal invitation soon appeared in the Western press. Snow wasn't exactly a favourite of the Republican administration in Washington, being a commie sympathiser as far as they were concerned. But they couldn't deny they were commie sympathisers too by now. Maybe not in spirit, but increasingly in practice. Economic and tourist restrictions were relaxed, and Nixon swooned to a reporter from Time magazine, If there's anything I want to do before I die, let's go to China. If I don't, I want my children to. Well, the signals couldn't have been clearer. He wants it. We want it. Let's do it. The scene was almost set, but there was one more game to play. The game of ping pong, to be exact. China may have been shunned by the global community, but there was one thing that no one could deny. They were ping pong masters. Mao actually used ping pong players as virtual missionaries, sending them abroad to teach people the game elsewhere, making China look good, etc. Until the Cultural Revolution came and it became more likely that if you were going on a trip, it was to prison. But in spring 1971, the World Table Tennis Championships were to be played in Nagoya, Japan. And so Mao got those ping pong players out of retirement and dramatically handed them back their little paddle bats. At least, that's how I imagine it happening. After practice one day in Nagoya, the American player Glenn Cohen missed his team's bus and ended up riding with the Chinese team. Most of the Chinese players stayed quiet, unsurprising considering how demonised the Americans had become in Chinese propaganda. But one player, a certain Zhuang Zedong, got up the courage to shake his hand and actually gave the American a gift, a portrait of the Yellow Mountains that he had in his bag. Why did this ping-pong player have such a nice gift with him at this overseas sports tournament? Or maybe all sports people carry around depictions of beautiful landscapes in their luggage. I don't know. Anyway, Glenn Cohen had no such gift to reciprocate. But the next day he gave Zhuang a t-shirt with a peace emblem in American red, white and blue and the words, Let it be, written on it. A more appropriate exchange of cultural gifts I could not imagine. So just how spontaneous was this encounter, we might wonder? Are such happy accidents so likely in the world of Cold War diplomacy? I think the jury's still kind of out on that one. 
Either way, the journalists happened to be there at that point, and they just loved this sight. The two sportsmen beaming at the cameras with gifts they'd exchanged. It was the good news story that the world wanted. Do you want to go to China? The reporters asked Glenn Cohen. Of course, he replied, and when Mao read the news, he decided to invite the American ping-pong players to China. And a few days later, they found themselves in the Middle Kingdom, the first Americans to be invited inside in a couple of decades, who weren't Maoist Black Panthers or Edgar Snow. But still, the political sensitivity of this stuff couldn't be over-exaggerated. Neither side wanted this potential warming of relations to become public, just in case it didn't work out and they ended up caught with their pants down on the world stage. And at the top of the sensitivity pyramid was Taiwan, the Republic of China. In Washington's eyes, the ROC was the real China. Losing the mainland to the communists hadn't changed that. In Beijing's eyes, Chiang Kai-shek's regime on Taiwan was governing over a rogue, breakaway province and had to be brought back into the fold. American support had been crucial in preventing that happening by force. This detente between the USA and PRC was an existential threat for Taiwan, so extreme delicacy was required. So it was agreed in principle that Nixon would visit Mao, but a secret preliminary meeting would take place at the highest level first, in preparation for the meeting between the leaders, and to begin hashing out details for the agreement that they hoped would come out of it. So Henry Kissinger landed himself the job of a lifetime to travel to China to meet Premier Zhou Enlai. In September 1971, he flew to Pakistan, where the plan was to fake a tummy bug, although rather awkwardly he actually did get a tummy bug. And then, while apparently laid up in bed, knocking back the Imodian capsules, he flew in secret over the Himalayan mountains to Beijing. There, Zhou Enlai held lengthy talks with Kissinger, who, at just 48, was the junior by age and experience to the Chinese premier, who was now in his 70s. Zhou was a revolutionary and a founding father of the newest incarnation of China. He was, once upon a time, even the superior to Mao himself. Kissinger would later tell Nixon that Zhou was the most impressive statesman he'd met, alongside Charles de Gaulle. At the meeting, Zhou was sharp, warm, professional and humane, with vast knowledge at his fingertips. The whole atmosphere of the talks and the setting of Beijing, which in those days was a far humbler place, full of bicycles and low-rise buildings, well, it all charmed and impressed Kissinger, who came away convinced that the Chinese were committed ideologues and were no pushovers. Among other things, they discussed the conditions for withdrawing from Vietnam, their concerns about the Soviets, and they went back and forth on the status of Taiwan and what American support for it should be and the tricky issue of how to present the Chinese invitation to Nixon. Neither side wanted to appear to be the groveller here. Even after all that, another meeting had to take place before Nixon himself could go to China. I's needed to be dotted and T's crossed before the leaders could get together for those historic handshakes and sips of Baijiu. So the truth about the courtship was made public, with Nixon referring to himself in the third person as he told America... Knowing of President Nixon's expressed desire to visit the People's Republic of China, Premier Zhou Enlai, on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China at an appropriate date before May 1972. 
President Nixon has accepted the invitation with pleasure. And the Chinese people were told at the same time. In October 1971, Kissinger and Joe met again, but this time not in secret. More details were hammered out and Kissinger and Joe, well, they pretty much skipped hand in hand along the water's edge on a sandy beach, while a beautiful sunset painted the sky a pretty purple behind them. In the same month, October 71, the question of China's seat at the United Nations came up, and the delegates booted out Chiang Kai-shek's Republic of China and made way for Mao's People's Republic. Despite the USA being all friendly to China at this time, they opposed the motion, although this was in part calculation, knowing that it would pass. The UK and France, though, well, they voted with the China-friendly nations, and the UN hasn't looked back since. Then, for a week in late February 1972, Richard Nixon became the first US president to visit the People's Republic of China, ending 25 years of silence between the two countries. Descending the stairs from the plane at the airport in Beijing, Nixon made a point of extending his hand to Premier Zhou Enlai, knowing that Zhou's handshake had been snubbed by Dulles back in 1954. Zhou told Nixon that, your handshake came over the vastest ocean in the world. And with that, a new era was upon us. Chairman Mao was old and unwell at this point. It wasn't even a certainty that he'd be able to meet Nixon. But he was feeling up to it, and so he called for the meeting early. Nixon was off to Zhongnanhai, straight into the court of the peasant emperor. As the two leaders exchanged niceties and philosophies for an hour, Mao told Nixon that he was relatively happy when right-wingers come to power. Maybe he was charming Nixon. Or maybe the headache caused by his wife, Jiang Qing, and her left-wing clique, the Cultural Revolution Group in Shanghai, was getting to him. Indeed, the left in China were opposed to this budding friendship. For the idealists, this pragmatism was just too much to stomach. Well, most of the substance of the agreement was already hashed out by Joe and Lai and Henry Kissinger. So Nixon and his wife Pat went to see the sites for a week, shielded, of course, from the wreckage of the Cultural Revolution, which, despite nominally ending in 1969, was still playing out. A few months prior to Nixon's holiday, back in September 71, Mao's chosen successor Lin Biao had gone missing and crashed in a plane in Mongolia, after what seemed like a botched coup attempt against Mao. Alongside dealing with Nixon, Joe and Lai had to sort out that mess too, and make sure the Americans didn't start asking where Lin was. We'll be looking at the Lin Biao debacle in more detail at a later date. So Nixon was toasted by his hosts in the Great Hall of the People when they went to the Great Wall, and Nixon spoke about walls in the metaphorical sense, and overcoming them as he had done by coming to China. And he described the Great Wall as, well, great. And this was a performance for the world to watch, with carefully selected fake tourists dropped in in the background. Weirdly enough, Peter Sellers saw the opportunity to make a real performance out of the trip. And with the American John Adams, he went and made an opera called Nixon in China. Now, if you're anything like me, you'd assume that this would be a kind of springtime for Hitler sort of show a Mel Brooksian piss-take of the whole Sino-American love affair which had taken the geopolitical world by storm. But no, this was sincere. It was a story of contrasting worldviews and customs 
of reflection and hope. And it ends with Joe and Lai alone in his bedroom, meditating on his legacy with an aria. It is certainly curious that it was a right-wing Republican that would open the gates for Mao's China to join the international order, and to do it at the height of the Cultural Revolution as well. When Mao joked to Nixon that he had voted for him, did Nixon mutter under his breath, well, at least someone voted for me, Mr. Chairman. Nixon had no illusions. He was a paid-up anti-commie. America had been through the Red Scare and McCarthyism, and was drenched in a hysterical form of anti-communism, over and above the quite reasonable concerns about the influence that powerful communist China could have. I mean, the economics of the Great Leap and the politics of the Cultural Revolution left nothing to the imagination. And they were recent or ongoing events at this point in time. And Nixon was happy to turn a blind eye. Of course, you had hippies and Black Panthers and Edgar Snow, who had sympathies with communist China. But it's one of those strange quirks of politics that sometimes it takes the strongest ideological opponents to make amends with the enemy, because they can sell it to their allies. Indeed, when a politician makes uh, such an unlikely move, you might hear commentators use the adage, well, only Nixon could go to China. A British example that comes to mind is how Boris Johnson was able to sell his Brexit deal with Europe to Brexit-supporting politicians and newspapers where Theresa May couldn't. Reason being that Boris had convinced them that he was one of them, and he wouldn't sell them out. Well, as George W. said, Fool me once. Okay, to the whole point of this, what did this meeting give the world? Well, that's the Shanghai communique, signed at the end of the visit. The document states that both sides wish to move towards normalisation of relations, reduce the chance of international conflicts, and refrain from seeking hegemony in the Asia-Pacific region. They also clearly differentiate themselves on international matters, setting out their principles for freedom, sovereignty, and self-determination of nations around the world. In a world of Cold War client states, rivalries, and allies, this is an extremely delicate and ambiguous situation. For example, when China states that it doesn't like military expansionism in Japan and supports Japanese neutrality, it really means that it doesn't want America to have military bases in Japan, regardless of what Japan wants. And when America says it places the highest value on its friendly relations with Japan, it really means we're keeping our bases there, thank you very much. And similar statements are made about Vietnam, India and Pakistan, and North and South Korea. But the most frequently referenced part of the communique is the Taiwan bit. For the PRC is super clear. Taiwan is China. China is the People's Republic of China. The government in Beijing is the sole legal government of China. Mic drop. The US's position is more ambiguous because of some clever wording. It goes, The United States acknowledges that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait maintain there is but one China, and that Taiwan is a part of China. The United States government does not challenge that position. This has become known as the One China Policy. However, if you read carefully, you'll notice that it doesn't say America agrees that there is one China. It says America acknowledges that those in Taiwan and those on the mainland agree that there is one China. And that was totally true. 
The PRC in Beijing said there's one China and it's ours. And the ROC on Taiwan said there's one China and it's ours. The Americans managed to simply restate that without saying if they agree with the PRC's position. It's a small silver lining in what was otherwise a huge betrayal to Taiwan. But the legacy of that wordplay has been huge. It allows America to continue to support Taiwan just enough to keep China from invading and to say that they support the status quo. America doesn't support a Taiwanese declaration of independence, but the people of Taiwan have effectively come to that position anyway. They just can't turn it into a reality. The legacy of this patch-up still resounds today, but what did it mean for the situation at the time? Well, let's return to the Sino-Soviet split. The War of Words between China and the USSR continued during the 70s, and tensions on the border continued. Although following a meeting at Ho Chi Minh's funeral, two sides did start negotiations. They would have to continue for 20 years or so, which tells you something. Nixon was able to leverage his newfound relationship with China to put pressure on Moscow, and made deals with Brezhnev to control nuclear arms. As a result, America was able to use the words peaceful coexistence in reference to both the Soviet Union and China, which was quite an achievement. But the Americans discovered that befriending China didn't really help negotiations in Vietnam, as China had already fallen out of love with their comrades to the south. Still, the US was pulling out anyway and handing over the effort to the South Vietnamese. The Paris Peace Accords were signed in January 1973, which promised to end the war, and Henry Kissinger and North Vietnam's Le Duc Tho, uh, apologies for the pronunciation of that, were awarded the 1973 Nobel Peace Prize for being the main negotiators on the treaty. But Le Duc Tho, apologies again, didn't accept the prize, which was telling. The agreement wasn't ratified by the US Senate, and North and South Vietnam carried on fighting a couple of months after the treaty was signed. Without American support, Vietnam fell to the Northern Communists in 1975, and it stayed that way ever since. For China to make friends with Nixon was certainly a kick in the teeth for the North Vietnamese, who doubled down on their relationship with the Soviets as the Chinese abandoned them. Ethnic Chinese in Vietnam became persecuted because they were thought to be disloyal, and China and South Vietnam had a close but nasty battle over the Paracel Islands in January 1974. Even though the battle was with South Vietnamese forces, the northerners were hardly supportive of the Chinese occupation of the islands, and it's a dispute which continues to this day. Anyway, as Vietnam became reunified under North Vietnamese leadership in 1975, China supported their increasingly blood-soaked and deranged rivals in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge. The Khmer Rouge were persecuting ethnic Vietnamese in their country, or the Vietnamese in turn were persecuting ethnic Chinese in their country. These were all nominally socialist states, but again, ethnicity and national identity trumped the spirit of socialist fraternity. In 1978, with Mao Zedong's and Zhou Enlai's lives finally over, the new Vietnam made a defence treaty with the USSR, who planned to use a port there for their Pacific fleet. Well, China's new supreme leader Deng Xiaoping warned them against that, and this outrage combined with Vietnam invading Cambodia to get rid of Pol Pot was enough to get Chinese troops on the move again, 
with Deng Xiaoping telling his American counterpart, Jimmy Carter, the child isn't listening, it's time for a spanking. The idea wasn't to conquer Vietnam or something like that, but to show the Vietnamese that China was still the daddy. And after Deng warned the Soviets not to come to Vietnam's defence, also to show them that they could not count on the USSR. Throughout the 70s, the health of the Soviet leader, Leonid Brezhnev, went into steep decline. He was having heart attacks and strokes, gaining weight, losing memories and slurring his words. Basically couldn't run things anymore. Of course, the members of the Politburo were asking each other about who could take over, but in a system like that we often find ourselves waiting around for the inevitable to finally happen. Early in 82, Brezhnev was touring a factory and something collapsed on him. The universe was telling the old man to move on. He'd been in charge of the USSR for longer than anyone except Stalin. Near the end of the year, he finally gave up the ghost. And after a few years of wrangling, Mikhail Gorbachev took over. Soviet Russia was entering its twilight years. With Deng Xiaoping in China and Mikhail Gorbachev in the USSR, we had two committed socialists who didn't want the personality cults and the purges and recognised the benefits of the Western systems that they institutionally decried. Deng opened up China to the international economic system and Gorbachev's desire to allow more freedom and democracy planted the seeds of the Soviet state's demise. On 25th December 1991, the flag of the Soviet Union was lowered at the Kremlin and the country ceased to exist. But the scenes that most symbolise the end of Soviet power and the end of the Cold War are those people climbing over the Berlin Wall in winter 1989, pulled up by their compatriots on the western side and taking chunks out of the wall with hammers. And of course, David Hasselhoff doing a gig on top of the wall. It was the moment the world was waiting for. Well, moments like that were a step too far for Deng Xiaoping, which is why in the summer of 1989 he had conceded to violently quashing the people's hopes for democracy in China at Tiananmen Square. The pro-democracy students had used the anniversary of the May 4th movement and the visit of, would you believe it, Mikhail Gorbachev, the first summit between China and the USSR in ages and the chance to get things back on track, well, they cannily used these events to rouse the spirit of the people and put pressure on the leadership in Beijing. And when the hunger strikes began, with the more radical elements of the movement calling the shots, well, the stakes became very high indeed. As Deng and Gorbachev discussed matters in the Great Hall of the People, a ruckus was going on over the road, and the international press were there to see it all playing out, causing huge embarrassment for the party. After Gorbachev went home, Deng explained to his fellow leaders that of course they want to build a socialist democracy, but elections would cause chaos. Stability is the priority. He sided with the hardliners and called in the troops and tanks. And the rest is history. Or if you're behind China's Great Firewall, the rest is a blank page in history. Go back to episode 18, which is called And Quick Mouths, for the whole Tiananmen Square massacre story. Privately, Gorbachev was dismayed with the violent crackdown, but in public, 
he went quiet. In fact, he thought, dearie me, what a load of problems the Chinese have. Clearly, the severity of his own situation hadn't yet hit home. Relations with China had to be mended either way. And with the true Class A hotheads of the Cold War now gone, this could now happen. As the USSR broke down, an agreement was made with China about the border dispute, in which Russia lost about 720,000 square kilometres of territory. It's an early indication of the new reality of this relationship of the regimes. As the 20th century petered out, China was top dog. Well, that's the story of the Sino-Soviet split. But just as much it's the story of China's ascension to the family of nations as defined by the UN, and how they managed to hang on to their authoritarianism in the process. That's no mean feat. Turning on the Soviets and making friends with America was China once again playing the long game. And although at the time both sides had something to gain from reconciling their differences, in the long run I think there's no doubt that it's China who benefited the most. The economic opening up of China, made possible with America's consumers, and pushed through with Deng Xiaoping's leadership, made China incredibly wealthy and influential. While Western analysts once thought that economic liberalisation in China would lead to political liberalisation too, that hasn't come to pass, and Beijing has tightened control over its population, aided by new technologies, which are increasingly a necessity in any authoritarian's toolkit. From the American perspective, they won the Cold War against the Soviets, lowered the temperature where nuclear war was concerned, and the rapprochement with China no doubt helped that. But they put rocket boosters on China in the process. They did get out of Vietnam, but there are few versions of history which see that as anything but a drawn-out disaster. They also abandoned Taiwan, but not enough to completely doom them, at least not yet. The uneasy status quo lingers on, although for how long, no one can be sure. After the USSR collapsed, Russia and China have once again patched things up, and are on the same team against America once more. Many observe that Beijing is one of the keys to eventually stopping Russia's war in Ukraine, but China and Russia still share many interests, and just as Gorbachev turned a blind eye to the crimes in Tiananmen Square, now Xi Jinping turns a blind eye to crimes across Ukraine. Still, the tables have turned, and Russia is now firmly the junior partner in the Sino-Russian relationship. And now it's Moscow that has to be concerned about being swallowed up by its more powerful communist neighbour. Okay, so that's enough history for now. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, let's get back to the school. And after the Chinese New Year break, there were new teachers in the family, and we all had to go and get drunk together.